it is a delight to, to be here and share with you as one of the senior citizens here with you know, one foot on a banana peel and the other in the grave, I appreciate the 14th chapter of John's gospel. Jesus begins and says this, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, um, you may be also. These verses have been precious to followers of Jesus Christ uh, for centuries, um, from the time that Jesus first said them right up to today. Now, you don't have to, but if you would like to, in memory of Heber, you could say, amen. You know, he didn't just say, amen. He said, amen. You got to practice that a little bit because he sat right there and Pastor Jeff gave testimony on Friday. He's going to miss him. We're all going to miss that. Um, but if you believe the promise of Jesus that he will come back someday to take us to be with in heaven, would you say, Amen. You need a little practice, but you're coming. That's good, wonderful. I hope Heber's listening. I want to narrow that focus of that question a bit. Uh, and again, uh, you can say amen if you agree. But how many of you um, believe Jesus could come back to take us to heaven today? Amen. Amen. Me too. Hallelujah. Uh, in the last chapter of our Bibles, Revelation 22, Jesus says three times that he is coming soon. And John responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I, I am going to dare to ask one more question. And I want you to think about this before you answer. How many of you believe Jesus will come back today? As that question formed in my mind this past week, I had to do some real soul searching. I can easily say amen in affirmation of those first two questions regarding the return of our Lord, but do I believe Jesus will come today? He will come today. As I was pondering that thought, a story came on the Q13 evening news on August 22nd, just three days ago, that our region was experiencing a slow slip event, and that it had the potential to trigger a significant earthquake here at the surface. The slow slip is taking place miles below us in the continental plates, but it had that potential. Um, here are some of the quotes I I got down from the um, story as it appeared on Q13's website. Um, the reporter says, the land that we're on right now is called the North American Plate. There is another tectonic plate called the Juan de Fuca Plate that is just off our coast. According to seismologists, the offshore plate, that Juan de Fuca Plate, is moving underneath 
the North American plate or slipping slowly. Once in a while, the North American plate slides just a little bit, a few inches toward the west. So the region that's just under the Olympic Peninsula or on Vancouver Island is moving just a few inches to the west during these slow slip events, said Harold Tobin, director of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. But what's concerning for some seismologists, and there is a difference of opinion about this, is that the slow slip event will slightly increase the chances of earthquakes or even the big one. Typically, the plates are locked, according to Tobin, but because the plates are moving, there is concern that the slip will cause an earthquake. We have an increased chance of a big earthquake initiation because the slip is adding load to the bottom edge of the fully locked zone of the Cascadia Fault, said um, that uh, Pacific Northwest um, Seismology Network seismologist Bill Steele. The Cascadia Fault is one, uh, one that scientists all agree could cause the big quake. But Steele also points out that there have been several of these slow slip events that didn't cause a big earthquake over the past 300 years. Nonetheless, this article concludes what scientists can agree on is people should always be prepared. Like myself, um, many of you have been taught for years, for decades even, that Jesus may come today. This morning you have already affirmed your faith in that promise. But how do you feel about the question, do you believe Jesus will come today? I don't know if the slow slip is still going on. It's only three days since that report. It could still be sliding. The big one still could happen even today. Um, it's not a question of if, they say. It's a question of when. If I were to ask how many of you believe the Puget Sound region will be hit by a major earthquake someday, I suspect that most, if not all, of you would respond in the positive. But if I ask how many of you believe the big one will hit today, I think I already know the answer. Not very many of us believe that major trembler will strike today because we aren't ready. We haven't taken the steps necessary to survive that catastrophe. If you really believe it will happen today and you're not prepared, you just might get out of your seat right now and go get ready because the slow slip could make it happen. Just so at the end of our Bibles, Jesus said three times, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. If you believe Jesus has promised, you'll get ready as soon as possible because it really could be today. If you're not ready, but you want to get ready, would you grab one of the elders of this church and ask them uh, to help you get prepared for the Lord's return? And if you are ready, I'd like to suggest that you cultivate this ritual. When you wake up each morning before your feet hit the floor, ask yourself, will this be the day? Will 
this be the day when Jesus comes again? Now, as I wrote that question, I have to tell you, I, I compromised. Because what I really wanted to suggest was that before your feet slide into your slippers each morning, you should say to yourself, Jesus will come today. You think it would affect the way you live your daily life if you were bold enough to really believe that Jesus is coming today? Um, I think it would be the big one. <laughs> it would be a major shake in your life, in this church, and in our communities. This morning, we want to meet a guy who believed Jesus could come at any moment. So please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the Bible uh, that is under the seat in front of you. If you're using that, you can find John, chapter 1, on page 833. For centuries, Jewish families um, had lived with the promise of a coming Messiah who would sit on the throne of David and govern the nation in righteousness and truth. The, uh, the promise of a coming Savior makes its first appearance in Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 and is repeated, reinforced, and reiterated throughout the history of, Adam's, uh, of Abraham's seed, the family uh, God formed into a nation and through which he promised the Messiah would come into the world. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is reminiscent of the promise. For, us a, for to us a child is born, the prophet writes. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so for centuries, Israel waited. Jewish children from their earliest days were taught about this coming Messiah. By New Testament times, however, most descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long since quit believing the promise. Oh, the thought lingered in the back of their minds, but they really didn't expect the Messiah to come in their lifetimes. But not all had abandoned hope. A remnant were following a radical messianic evangelist by the name of John the Baptist. And we want to begin reading at verse 19 of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, At what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, 
then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, I think Hebrew would have said, Amen. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but uh, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is uh, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Uh, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Let's pray. We come to you, Sovereign Lord, expecting great things from your word. Please open our eyes to see you and understand who you are and what that means for our daily lives right here in Edgewood and the surrounding communities. Open our ears, O oh God, to hear and obey your commands. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. A little further on from where we stopped reading in John 1, we learn that one of the two as yet unidentified disciples of John the Baptist is a man named Andrew. The name of the other is never revealed and is therefore often presumed to be John, the, um, the soon-to-be apostle who penned this gospel. He typically goes unnamed in the narrative of his book. I am going to proceed on that assumption this morning, but one thing we don't have to assume is the clear description of Andrew and John as disciples of John the Baptist. So before going on, we must pause to ask, what is a disciple? In an article by Anthony Carter um, on the Table Talk website, I found this helpful description. He wrote, a disciple is a student. A disciple is one who disciplines himself in the teachings and practices of another. The word disciple, like discipline, comes from the Latin word discipulus, pardon my Latin, meaning pupil or learner. 
thus to learn is to dis discipline oneself. For example, if one is to advance in the arts or the sciences or athletics, one has to discipline himself and to learn and follow the principles and fundamentals of the best teachers in that area of study. So it was and is with the disciples of Christ. A disciple follows Jesus. When Jesus called his first disciples, he spoke the simple words, follow me. We'll see that. You'll see that in verse 43 of this first chapter, for example, of John. He goes on, a disciple is a follower, one who trusts and believes in a teacher and follows that teacher's words and example. Therefore, therefore, to be a disciple is to be in a relationship. It is having an intimate, instructive, and imitative relationship with the healer. It is having an intimate, instructive, and imitative relationship with the teacher. Consequently, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is being in relationship with him. It is seeking to be like Jesus. May I ask, are you a disciple? End quote. That is rich. I'll repeat his question. Given that definition, are you a disciple? Are you cultivating a relationship with Jesus and seeking to be like him? Have you entered into an intimate, instructive, imitative relationship with your teacher? Jonathan Parnell on the Desiring God website adds this thought. The standard definition of disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. Applied to Jesus, a disciple is someone who learns from him to live like him. Someone who because of God's awakening grace conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus. Or you might say, as others have put it in the past, disciples of Jesus are themselves little Christs. He is alluding to what we learn in Acts 11.26 that the disciples were first called Christians, little Christs in Antioch. Now that we're informed as to what a disciple is, let's get back to the scripture verses we read in the Gospel of John. Two unnamed disciples are introduced into the narrative who are explicitly stated to be disciples of John the Baptist. Why? What might be their motivation for following him, for cultivating a relationship with him? Think back a few paragraphs. The Jewish faithful in Jesus' day were hoping for a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression and restore Israel to the glory days of David and Solomon. So here are two young men who apparently believed the Messiah could actually come in their lifetimes. Indeed, they may have believed the Messiah was already here in the person of John the Baptist, and so they have come to learn from him and to discipline themselves to follow him. That's what disciples do. And it's in this context of following John that they are witnesses to his denial that he is the Messiah. The denial issued in response to the inquiry of the religiously elite Jews known as the Pharisees. It is also possible they were, that they were at least in the vicinity when in verse 29, 
John pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This description had to pique the desire of these two avid seekers of Messiah who dared to believe that the promised one might come in their lifetimes. Indeed, he might even be in the very crowd they are standing among. I look forward to asking them someday if they got up from their sleeping mats every morning and as they slipped their feet into their sandals, they thought or even said out loud to themselves, perhaps today, perhaps today. Would you remind me when we get there? Because I'm prone to forget these days. And so you just prod me if I forget to ask John and Andrew about their morning ritual, but I think they were excited about the prospect that the Messiah would come that very day. And so it is that when in their presence, John physically points to Jesus and identifies him as the Lamb of God, Andrew and his friend immediately leave lesser things behind to follow Jesus. That's what disciples do. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you leave lesser things behind in order to follow the greater. That's not to belittle John or consider his ministry to be of little value. John was not an empire builder. John's whole mission in life was to point others to the, to the Messiah and prod them to follow him. Please turn back a few pages in your Bible uh, to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and I'd like you to go to chapter 10, page 765. I used to call them pew Bibles. Um, we don't have pews, so chair Bibles. Page 765 in the chair Bible. I just want to have you set your eyes on one verse. John, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, we hear Jesus say, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those are hard verses on the surface. But Jesus does not mean that our familial, familial ties uh, are to be jettisoned altogether. He simply means that for disciples, our intimate relationship with Christ must take priority over all of our other relationships. He is first. He is the priority. And it is amazing to me, back in the 37th verse of John 1, how rapidly this shift in allegiance takes place. Obviously, John had done his job as their teacher, preparing those, these guys for that moment so that when he points them to Jesus, there is no hesitation whatever. They are, there was no looking back. They knew John's teaching about the Messiah, and thus they immediately switched allegiance and followed. They became disciples of Jesus with all that means in the definitions we considered earlier. 
Find your way to Mark's gospel, if you would, please. Mark um, chapter, um, I want you to go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And um, go down to verse 16, please. Mark 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, um, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the um, unnamed disciple in, uh, of John the Baptist in John 1, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired servants and hired, I'm sorry, with the hired servants and followed Jesus. What's going on here? I, I thought Andrew and John had already become followers of Jesus in the presence of John the Baptist, as we read in the first chapter of John's gospel. That, this in Mark chapter 1 is a very different scene. Here, Jesus is calling Andrew and John, the fishermen, to follow him. What we've learned um, so far is that John and Andrew are obviously avid seekers after Messiah and had begun at some point to follow John the Baptist in their pursuit of messianic leadership. So when John directs them, John the Baptist directs them point blank to Jesus as their Messiah, they immediately become followers of Rabbi Jesus. But these are working men. They likely have families to support and, and as at the very least, as Mark points out, they have fathers to whom they are accountable as laborers in the family business. Dad and mom in their elderly years depended on their sons to support them. There was no pension. There was no Social Security. It was you taking care of your parents. And so this is a big deal. What's apparent is that there is a process involved as these men grow in their knowledge and understanding of Jesus and his mission. They begin as part-timers, following Jesus, going home to work, going back to follow Jesus and learn from him, going back to work. And on this occasion in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, enough of this. Come and follow me. Quit going back. You're committed to me. Follow me. We're in this relationship together. May I point out that here in Mark, even their secular professions are among the lesser things they leave behind in order to follow Christ. They left off following John, their mentor. And now they leave behind even their livelihoods in order to discipline themselves to follow Jesus. As that thought 
passed through my mind this week. I went back to, forgive me, Pastor Jeff, but I think it was the missions weekend we had, end of, uh, end of May, 1st of June, when Pastor Jeff said, we want to see people in this congregation who are willing to, to follow Jesus um, uh, professionally, <laughs> full-time, to be partners with Jesus in the global mission of the gospel. Uh, his call was that you might be willing to leave your job behind in order to go wherever Jesus leads you. Um, the Coulters did that. Um, Ryan and Stephanie have done that. Um, others in this congregation have done that. Um, are you willing to be one that you follow Jesus no matter where he calls you to go? Well, let's go back to John chapter 1. I want you to see next in our discipleship portrait that disciples hunger for the word of Christ. Please look again at verse 35, John chapter 1, verse 35. The numbers are so little in my Bible and my eyes are so old I can't find it. But here it is. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with his two disciples. We know them now as Andrew and John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, and they followed him. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I want to share something uh, William Barclay wrote about the question Jesus asked of these future apostles, John and Andrew. In verse 38, here's Barclay. Jesus began by asking these two men the most fundamental question of, in life. What are you looking for? He asked them. It was very relevant to ask that question in Palestine in the time of Jesus. Were they legalists looking only for subtle and recondite conversations with, uh, uh, about the little details of the law like the scribes and Pharisees? Were they ambitious time servers looking for position and power like the Sadducees? Were they nationalists looking for a political demagogue and a military commander who would smash the occupying power of Rome like the zealots? Were they humble men of prayer looking for God and his will like the quiet in the land? Or were they simply puzzled, bewildered, sinful men looking for light on the road of life and forgiveness from God? It would be well, Barclay concludes, if every now and again we ask ourselves, what am I looking for? What's my aim? What's my goal? What am I really trying to get out of life? So Jesus wants to know, what are you seeking? How would you answer his question? 
What are you seeking? Their reply to the question on the surface, at least, seems to be utterly irrelevant, incoherent. Rabbi, where are you staying? His question was, what are you seeking? They ask, where are you staying? I read a number of ideas by various commentators as to why this response is relevant. I would like to um, uh, propose my own, um, and I'm certainly not a scholar like some of these commentators, but I simply wasn't at ease with many of the things that I found written. Would you look back in this first chapter to verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14, and the word, speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh in the incarnation and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For him, his fullness, we have all received. I'm sorry, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word, the revelation of God to man in the person of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, has literally tabernacled or made his dwelling among us, among mankind. This reference to the tabernacle recalls the tent in Exodus where God dwelt among his people. You remember in the midst of the camp, there was the tabernacle. There is where God dwelled. And everybody was, and the rest of the people of Israel were gathered around that central location. Verse 15 of the, uh, uh, that we just read indicates that this was in part at least what John the Baptist was teaching. You read the first the 14th verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. I don't think it's a stretch to think that Andrew and his companion had heard John's message that God had come to tabernacle or to dwell among his people of this generation of Jews. So when the Baptist introduces these two seekers of Messiah to the word and the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel, um, I'm sorry, these 
John introduces these two seekers, the Messiah, to uh, the Word, the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel. These fledgling learners, these two untrained followers of Jesus cannot be faulted if they want to see this tent. They want to see this tabernacle, this dwelling where God is meeting with man. The Greek word translated staying also means dwelling. This fits with the Lord's rejoinder to them in verse 39. He said, come and you will see. This word see means more than to see with the eyes. It also means to see with the mind, to understand, to comprehend. The rest of verse 39 references a physical place where Jesus was dwelling at the time. John, the apostle, makes sure we know that the hour is late. It's the 10th hour, which equates to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Given the lateness of the day, uh, it is generally believed by scholarly minds that Andrew and friend stayed all night in the home where Jesus was. I seriously doubt, however, that anybody slept that night. This was like Christmas. Uh, maybe I should say Hanukkah to these two young Jewish boys, young men. I, I mean, they, they had just received the best gift ever. They had to be too excited to, to sleep. Think about it. They had prayed countless times in their young lives that God would send the promised Messiah. Every day they got up thinking, this could be the day. And now they are in the presence of God tabernacling among us. I don't think, I seriously doubt they curled up in a corner somewhere and went to sleep. It just wasn't going to happen. If I was there, it wouldn't have happened. I would have spent the whole night talking to Jesus, learning from him, becoming his disciple, entering into that intimate relationship. They have such a precious gift, and all night long they're peeling back the wrapping and is finding just what it is that God has given us in the person of his son. There is no limit to the extent of this gift. They want to comprehend what it means for God to dwell with them, with us. And these brand new disciples are sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, feasting their souls on every word from his mouth because they simply could not get enough. Put yourself in their place. Isn't that how it would have been for you? Both student and teacher enjoy a marathon session as Jesus, perhaps like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, had their eyes opened to see Jesus in all of the Old Testament scriptures and understand all the prophecies about him that brought them to this place where Jesus is standing right in front of them. Let me ask, is the creator God who formed all we see in this amazing galaxy in which we live, dwelling in you? Are you feeding your hungry soul on his word? An hour or two 
once a week, every Sunday morning won't cut it, beloved. It is not enough. Just as your physical body needs daily sustenance, so also the spiritual life within you will die of malnutrition if you don't feed it. Your spirit will wither and dry up. Daily you need the meat and milk of the word in order to be a healthy disciple of Jesus. That's where you learn in his word what he wants from you. You also need fellowship with God in prayer. That is the oxygen that fills your lungs to get through all the toils and troubles of this life. Uh, come and see, Jesus said, today, if you are a disciple of Christ, you, you are the tabernacle of God. You are the dwelling place of God in our world. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul asked, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Do others sense the presence of God when you are near? Is the character of God just filling you and spilling into the world around you? Being the temple of God today should make a difference. So far, we've seen that disciples have leave lesser things behind in their search for the one who takes away the sin of the world. Then disciples hunger for the word of Christ, being eager to follow him and dwell with him and to be indwelt by him. Now in chapter 6 of John's gospel, we observe, we observe that disciples trust Jesus for the impossible. Would you turn to John chapter 6, please? I guess I neglected to mention earlier that the big numbers on the page, if you're not familiar with your Bible, the big numbers are the chapter designations, and the little numbers you can't see without a magnifying glass are... Um, are the verse designations. We want to begin reading at verse 1 of John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they, were, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain where he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up their eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was, I'm sorry, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each of them, uh, to, for each of them to, to even get a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Uh, for our purposes um, this morning, I'm not so much interested in the miracle itself as I am in the characters involved in the narrative. Thousands of people have thronged to Jesus to witness his healing ministry. Jesus uses the opportunity to test the faith of his disciples. He addresses Philip first, asking him where they could buy enough bread to feed the multitude, which we eventually learn numbered 5,000 men. It's frequently noted that this, does, this count does not include the women and children who may have been present that day. So I would say this crowd um, outnumbers the Mariner fans in T-Mobile Park this season. Philip assesses the situation. He puts his mental calculator to work, concluding that since Costco hasn't been invented yet, there is no way they could feed this crowd. And even if Costco was open, they didn't have enough money. It would take a, almost a year's salary to buy enough bread to feed all of these people. So what's the verdict? To feed this many people under these conditions, Jesus Philip concludes, is simply impossible. It's impossible. I don't, you know, I, I don't know what amount you're facing. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, nothing is impossible. These guys should have known, after all they had seen Jesus do, that Nothing was impossible for him. And that's when Andrew pipes up and he says, um, there is a kid here who has brought a lunch. It's not much, just five little barley loaves. I've read that those are like small um, pieces of flatbread and two small, probably pickled sardine-like fish. Wouldn't go far in a crowd like this, Andy concedes. But he seems to leave the door open for the impossible, and it's just exactly the opening Jesus is looking for in order to fulfill his plan. It just takes a mustard seed size of, uh, of faith to trust Jesus to do the impossible. And Jesus immediately takes over. He instructs the disciples to organize the groups, uh, the people into groups. And meanwhile, he begins breaking the loaves into baskets. The text doesn't tell us how it all happened, but I picture Jesus breaking bite-sized chunks off of these little barley loaves and dividing the little fish, putting a few morsels in each of 12 baskets. And then he prays, giving thanks to God for his abundant provision. Five loaves and two fish, an abundant abundance of food in the hands of Jesus. He puts it in these 12 baskets. And beloved, there is another test of faith here. I don't think Jesus filled the baskets up. We're not told how it happened, but I think Jesus broke those little pieces and put a little bit in each basket and handed it to his disciples and said, go feed them. Uh, you, I might have been tempted to say, 
Not going to work. We're not going to feed them with this little bit you got in my basket. But the disciples obey Jesus and they take those baskets and they just let people take out whatever they need to fill their stomachs. And the baskets never run dry. They always have food in them for the next person. And we're told that everybody got not just a morsel filled, but all they wanted to eat. Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You know, a lot of people believe that they have just been too bad to ever be forgiven. I can't tell you as a pastor how many people have told me that if they went to church, the roof would cave in or the walls would fall down. Um, I want to assure you, so far there has never been a documented instance of that ever happening. Do you know why? It's because the church is already full of sinners like me. Already full of sinners like me. That's nothing new for a sinner to walk in the doors of the church. It's not going to fall down or we would have been buried a long time ago. But we're sinners saved by grace because Jesus went to the cross and died for every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed. And when he arose from the grave, he defeated the power of sin and death once and for all. All that's needed for you to participate in his victory is to believe with just a mustard seed-sized faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you repent of that sin, and by the way, the size of the sin doesn't matter because to God, all sin is sin. And they all have the same consequences. But when you repent, he will act upon your grain of faith and do what is impossible for us, but is entirely possible for him. He will save your soul from death. He will rescue you from eternal condemnation and God's just punishment for sin. Will you trust him to save you today? Will you accept his free gift of forgiveness from sin and eternal life with him in heaven? We would love to see God do the impossible for you today. See, if there's anyone here who would, um, who would love the opportunity to share the gospel with another seek, person seeking the Savior, would you slip your hand up for a minute? You're willing to share the gospel with somebody this morning. Slip your hand up. Would you hold it there for a minute? Hold your hand up for just a minute. Thank you. Um, if you're a seeker of salvation today, would you latch on to one of these folks with their hands up? And, and, and meet Jesus before you leave today because he could return before the sun goes down and then it will be too late, forever too late. Thank you, volunteers. You can put your hand down if you haven't already, but I'm trusting you to simply share the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Nothing more and nothing less. I am willing to trust the Lord to feed hungry souls through you, as you in faith share the bread of life.
with another soul. I'm out of time, so I've got to quit. Um, but disciples affirm the um, global outreach of the gospel in um, John chapter 1. Andrew is shown to us in verses 35 to 42, bringing his brother Peter to Jesus. It is the first thing he does after the marathon night with Jesus is go find his brother. And then in, um, in, in chapter 12, uh, you know, his brother is a fellow Jew. So he's, he's bringing those close to him. Um, in, in chapter 12 of John, um, uh, we see Andrew um, in action once again um, because God has always had a desire for the whole world to enter his kingdom. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's the whole psalm. Two verses. But you hear echoes of John 3.16 in it, do you not? I want to try to blend them together. For God's steadfast love is so great toward us that he gave his only son that all nations, that all peoples might believe in him and not perish but experience the faithfulness of the Lord which endures forever. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Um, in, in that 12th chapter, a couple of Greek um, proselytes to Judaism approach Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. Philip, ha again, doesn't know what to do. And so he takes them to Andrew. And what does Andrew do? He takes them to Jesus. Everywhere in, in, in the Gospels where we see Andrew, outside of the list of apostles, every place we see him, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. That's our job too. We need to be about the task of introducing um, men and women, boys and girls, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Andrew provides an ideal portrait of a disciple of Jesus Christ. He never stopped being a fisher of men. Have you started? You don't have to memorize some plan. You don't have to know your Bible backwards and forwards. You don't have to have a license to preach. You don't even have to have permission. All you need to do is spend time with Jesus and tell somebody about it. Will you do that? And tomorrow morning when you get up, and your feet touch the floor, say, today, today we might see Jesus. Are you ready? I pray that you are. I pray that you are in a vibrant relationship with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, I've overstayed my welcome in this pulpit, I think, but Father, you know, um, you know the needs of this congregation. And Father, you know that, um, that we need uh, to be revived. Um, these are great people standing, sitting before me. They, they, this is a wonderful church. I, I love it. And Lord, I, I, I want us to be the best that we could be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to know you, to imitate you, and to live out your life 
in the world we live each day. Thank you for the sake of Jesus. Amen.